So this is my second week straight of preaching. We finished Habakkuk last week, and this week we're going to start in the book of Haggai in chapter 1. Um, and so you'll have me today, and then again next Sunday to complete Haggai, and then Pat, getting a lot of pops here, Pat will be back um, after that, and he will take on the entire book of Ruth, and then uh, Darren, who is our, our primary um, primary message giver, will be back, and he'll start the book of Daniel, so we're looking forward to their return. Uh, let me pray, and then we'll get started. Father, thank you for the book of Haggai, and for your word, and for what it means to us, and for um, how it instructs us and teaches us. We pray for those who are going to um, be instructing in, in Sunday school, that you would bless them, that your spirit would fill them, and, and that you would give uh, self-control to those they are there to instruct and teach. Have open hearts and open minds both there and in here as we dig into your word in Jesus' name. Amen. So years ago, when I worked in business, I ran a, a group of car washes, and uh, the building was constructed of a material called EFS. It's E-I-F-S, and it stands for Exterior Insulation and Finish System. What that basically means is it's a composite material that is insulated, and it's water-resistant. You can pour water through it, and it doesn't create mold or decay. It just flows through. So you can imagine how at a car wash, how that would be beneficial since water is basically everywhere. And... Um, it kind of looks like stucco from a distance, but it's not. It's very different. And so we had a really big storm, as we're prone to do in Texas, which is where, where this is. And no damage to the building from the storm. And so we opened, and we were operating and running cars through. And, and a big chunk of this EFIS fell off the side of the building and landed on a customer's car. The customer was fine. But we had to repair the customer's car, and now we have this huge chunk of wall that's now missing from the side of our building. And so we had to get that repaired, and we had a, a contractor that we used for a number of different projects and other car washes we had built, and um, was a, a good friend of mine as well. And most of the subcontractors that he used were people he had worked with before, he had experienced working with them, and he trusted them. But the, the EFIS contractor was a new person who had given us a, a lower bid that was going to save us some money on the process, and so we went with him. And as soon as it came time for him to do his part of the job, that's when trouble started to surface. He was late, he bought cheap uh, equipment, it was unreliable, he purchased inferior materials, and um, his work crew was extremely inexperienced, it seemed. And so as they started to, to start working on the side of the building and, and putting on material, it was very clear very quickly that things were not looking right, that we were going to be in for some trouble. And... The contractor, who was my friend, had had multiple conversations with this particular person, and he promised that everything was going to be fine, everything was going to work out, it was all going to look right in the end, and it didn't. And so, I remember the day that my friend, our contractor, was, was there as the workers were working, and it just looked absolutely terrible, and he stopped, and he said, everybody come down. And so they all came down, and he said, this isn't acceptable, and you're, you need to pack up your stuff and go, you're all fired. And the look on the 15 workers' faces who were in shock that they've just lost their job and now their revenue because they thought they were doing a good job. But I remember looking at my friend after all the workers had left and he's still standing there. Now, this was on the, the, the street side of our building. So every car that drives by, every person that walks by can see this 
as representative of our operation. And if your car wash doesn't look clean, what does that mean? And I remember him standing there on the, on the street side just staring at the building, I mean, for hours, just staring there in bewilderment of what do I do now? How do, how do I go forward from here and what's my reputation like from here? <clears throat> this is not exactly, but it's kind of like what we're going to see in the book of Haggai. Haggai is speaking to the people who are building the temple in Jerusalem. And he's berating them because of their poor and apathetic work. If we take a look at the historical background leading up to this time, in 539 B.C., Persia has conquered Babylon. And three years later, in 536 B.C., the Persian king Cyrus allowed the Jews who were in exile in Babylon to return to their land. And the book of Ezra gives us the details on this return. The first group of Jews to return were led by the civil leader Zerubbabel and the high priest Joshua. And nearly 50,000 people took part in this first return, and most of them settled either in Jerusalem or in one of its suburbs. Now remember that Jerusalem had been virtually destroyed by the Babylonians 70 years earlier. So these people that were returning were faced with a monumental task of rebuilding Jerusalem. In Nehemiah, they were tasked with rebuilding the wall, as you probably remember. And in Ezra, they were tasked with rebuilding the temple. The first thing they did was to remake the altar of burnt offering that stood in the temple courtyard and make sacrifices there, which was the first renewing of their worship of God. And then in the second year after their return, they laid the foundation for the new temple. Now prior to laying this foundation in the second year, they had taken enough time to make for themselves some rudimentary homes. But they knew the priority was on rebuilding the temple and they only spent as much time on their homes as was necessary to provide basic shelter. And once that was done, they set to work on the temple. And that's when the trouble begins. The half-blooded Samaritans asked to be included in the rebuilding of the Jewish temple. Now, why do I refer to them as half-blooded Samaritans? So Samaritans carry on the basic traditions of Jeroboam set in order in 931 B.C., when he set up two pagan worship centers to replace Jerusalem, one at Bethel and one at Dan. And while the Jews worshipped at their temple on Mount Zion in Jerusalem, the Samaritans worshipped at their temple at Mount Gerizim. And for those of you who remember Mount Gerizim, it is the original location of Joshua's altar. And because the Samaritans had intermarried with pagan women, they were no longer regarded as Jews. According to rabbinic law, only those who have Jewish mothers are real Jews. And so, because they were no longer regarded as Jews, the Samaritans were not entitled to worship in the temple in Jerusalem, nor were they permitted to help in the rebuilding of the temple after the Babylonian captivity. And on a side note, today it's estimated there are only about 300 still practicing Samaritans in today's time, total in the world. A very small faction of people. So when Zerubbabel refused to let them participate in rebuilding the temple, they went to the Persian court and they complained that the Jews were trying to rebuild Jerusalem as a fortress in which to rebel against the Persian overlords. And so reconstruction on the temple was stopped in order for them to be able to, to investigate into the real purposes behind this process. And so people were allowed to go to work on their own houses, and so they, they turned to them and started to build them up and, 
and to, uh, to work on them while they waited for the investigation to be completed. And the investigation was delayed, and so soon people dropped work on the temple altogether. In fact, even when it was clear that the Persians no longer really cared if they were working on the temple or not, people kept working on their houses and in their fields and their summer homes, and they did room additions and gardens, and, and it went on and on, and the temple stood half, not even half complete. And 16 years would pass before the Persian court would finally take official action. Darius would replace King Cyrus and reenacted Cyrus's original order for the rebuilding of Jerusalem. And that was in 520 BC. It would take another four years for them to finally complete the temple. Haggai was sent by God to stir the people to action in rebuilding the temple. This book is basically four fiery little mini-sermons which are aimed at exhorting the people to maintain a right set of priorities. Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi are known as post-exilic prophets because they are the three who lived and ministered to those Jews who returned from the exile of Babylon. Haggai and Zechariah lived at the, time, uh, at the same time and their message amplifies one another. Malachi lived about 100 years later and deals with many of the same problems that Haggai and Zechariah did. And it seems that the prophetic, the prophetic voice, more often than not, falls on deaf ears. Let's dig into chapter 1. In the second year of Darius the king, in the sixth month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Now this time marker gives us great confidence in placing this in August of 520 BC because we have detailed records from the Persian court on when Darius' rule began and in relation to events elsewhere in the Middle East. Zerubbabel was the governor officially commissioned by the Persians to administer the government there in Jerusalem and its suburbs. Joshua was the high priest. And it was ultimately the failed leadership of Zerubbabel and Joshua that allowed the people to stop God's work on the temple. Now you may ask, well, how can two people be responsible for all the other people choosing not to work? How can two people have that kind of an influence? Well, to begin with, they could have led by example. If they had been out there each day working on the temple themselves, others would have been inspired out of either pity or conviction to join them in the work. Christ demonstrates this many different times, perhaps the best known time of, of Christ, uh, Christ emulating and leading by example is when he washes the disciples' feet. Leaders should lead. Leaders of businesses, leaders of organizations, leaders of churches, leaders of people, and absolutely leaders of families. And I'm talking to the guys, I'm talking to myself. As a person who's been a leader of each of the things I've just listed, I can tell you that I have failed in all of them at different times. But maybe the place I failed the most in my life over time is in leading my family. Because the guy I am in the office is not the same guy I am when I get home. Leaders should lead. In every place that they have been given authority and responsibility, they should lead. 
Let's look at verse 2. Thus says the Lord of hosts, These people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Now, as I mentioned before, the people had returned 16 years before, and the first thing they did was to rebuild the altar of burnt offerings so they could renew their worship with God. Then they built some rudimentary shelters to live in, just basic, basic cover, as they started work on the, on the temple. But when they faced some opposition from their enemies, they called it quits on the temple and went to work on making themselves and their houses nicer and better. And here's the problem. 16 years have now passed, and the work on the temple is still being neglected. And here are some of their excuses. Well, it's obviously not the right time to work on the temple. I mean, after all, we don't even have a permit from the Persians. Well, that's not true. They did have a permit. They had a royal decree from King Cyrus that it was okay to start rebuilding Jerusalem. Well, yes, that's true, but there's some question as to whether or not that's still relevant. No, that's wrong too. The next king, Darius, decided that he would, again, reinforce that it was okay to begin working on, on the, the temple in Jerusalem. Okay, but, but look at our situation. We need better homes to live in, and our crops and our herds need tending. And every season, we're barely able to eke out an existence. It's so hard. Now, that part actually is true. It was hard. And we'll see that prosperity eludes them because their priorities are all in the wrong place. And then they might say, well, besides, while we were in Babylon, we learned to worship God a little bit differently. And we didn't have a temple there, and we got along okay, so why do we need a temple now? You see, they were willing, at least some of them, to resign themselves to far less than the best. The minimum was good enough. They were content with a mediocre and a lukewarm relationship with God. Adopting a false sense of piety and earnestness in their pursuit of God, they put a religious spin on their spiritual apathy by saying, the time is not yet come to build the temple. We're waiting on God's timing. Doesn't that sound spiritual? We're waiting on the Lord. How often is that just a cover for spiritual apathy? Jeremiah 17, 9 says, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? We might be able to deceive ourselves. We might be able to justify what we do in our own minds. But convincing God is another matter altogether. God is watching and he knows our hearts. You have to be honest with yourself before you can be honest with God. Why wait for the Lord's timing when his command is already clear? If God has spoken, we need to respond. His word is his release and his mandate. They ought to have focused on the rebuilding of the temple rather than neglecting it. The temple was the center and heart of their worship, and without the temple, they could not enter into the fullness of fellowship with God. So they justified their failure by putting a religious spin on it. We're waiting on the Lord. And God, through Haggai, calls their bluff. I'm curious, are there any procrastinators in the room? I know I'm one at times. Not always. There are some things where I'm very focused and I don't wait on anything. But then there are some things that I do. I can tell you that I have uh, been working on my MBA for three years this month. And I am now four weeks away from being done. 
I am so done with this process. I cannot wait for it to be over. The, the idea of writing another paper or analyzing another case study makes me feel, ugh. I don't even have a word to describe how I feel. I just feel, ugh. And so with four weeks left, what do I have in front of me? Three case studies and a paper. Ugh. So what will I do? I will put it off to the last minute, because I don't want to do it, and then I will have to pull three all-nighters in order to get it finished, and I'll get it done, but it will be much more difficult to do it then than it would be if I just started working on it now. Ask John Pfeiffer. He'll tell you how many times we've got together after church on a Sunday night and hung out, and he leaves at 11 o'clock, and I say, well, I've got to go write a paper now. When's it due? Tomorrow. Fortunately, I can pull that off, but it'd be so much easier if I just took the extra time I had and stopped watching YouTube and spent more time writing and doing my schoolwork or my work work for that matter. Procrastination is how we avoid the things that we're supposed to do. So let's take it up a notch. What has God told you to do that you keep putting off because of the ugh that you feel? Are you supposed to write a book? Are you supposed to begin a Bible study? Are you supposed to be serving at church? <clears throat> Are you supposed to be changing careers? Are you supposed to be leaving Cambodia? Are you supposed to be staying in Cambodia? What do you need to start for God? What do you need to finish for Him? If you're telling yourself the time has not yet come, perhaps it's time for you to be honest with yourself so you can finally be honest with God. Let's look at verse 3. Then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? They had said, it's not the right time to build God's house. And so God asks, oh, but it's the right time for you to be working on yours? And not just simple dwelling places. Oh, no, fancy houses with decorative paneling. He lays his finger on their motives and at the same time on their hearts. The reason they had neglected the temple was because they were selfish and they wanted to work on their own houses and build and increase their own comfort. It didn't take 16 years to build a house. They had made themselves nice homes in the first couple of years after their return. Then they had enlarged and decorated them and they added more and more. And 16 years had passed and they were still building onto their own mansions. Where were their priorities? And so I ask you, where are your priorities? What do you spend your time and your money on? Where does the bulk of your energy go? Are your earthly goals taking priority over your service to God? Do you tell yourself that once you reach a certain position, or once you've saved up a certain amount of money, or once the kids are a bit older, or once the kids are gone, I'll, I'll finally then start to serve God the way he wants? Perhaps God is asking you the same question he's asking the Israelites. Is it a time for you yourself to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? Are you building your kingdom or are you building God's kingdom? 
The Israelites were building their own kingdoms instead of God's. And as we'll see in these next verses, they were pursuing their careers and business ventures as well. And God says, look at your house and look at mine. Are your priorities in the right place? Let's look at verse 5. Now, therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Now, God uses this phrase a few times in this chapter, consider your ways. God wants the Israelites to take a step back from their busy and their hectic lives and spend some time evaluating the decisions that they have been making, the direction that they're going, and the consequences of those decisions. You know, it's rare anymore that I ask someone how they're doing, how's it going, what's happening, that the answer is not something like, oh man, it's really busy. Oh, it's crazy, man. Things are insane right now. Everyone is always busy. Everyone is always busy all the time. Busyness has become an epidemic. Everybody is always busy. We're busy with our jobs. We're busy with our careers, with taxes and paperwork. We're busy with banking. We're busy with our families because we've got, you know, we've got the music lessons and the swimming lessons. We've got soccer practice. We're busy with our friends. It's just one thing after another after another. We're always busy. And God's message to you might be consider your ways. Maybe what you're spending your time and your energy on, maybe the things that you're focused on doing are not fruitful for you. Perhaps they aren't making an impact in God's kingdom. Consider your ways. Take a step back. Assess. Evaluate. Evaluate the motive. Evaluate the benefits. And evaluate the consequences. Now, to be clear, I'm not saying that any of the things I put in that list are inherently bad. They're not. The questions you have to ask yourself are, is it good for you? Is it good for your family? Is it good for your relationship with God? And is it in line with what God wants you to do? Consider your ways. Verse 6, you have sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them into a bag with holes. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house, that I may take pleasure in it and I may be glorified, says the Lord. You looked for much, and behold, it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why? declares the Lord of hosts, because of my house that lies in ruins, while each of you busies himself with his own house. Therefore, the heavens above you have withheld the dew, and the earth has withheld its produce. And I have called for a drought on the land and the hills, on the grain, the new wine, the oil, uh, on what the ground brings forth, on man and beast, and on all of their labors. The picture that God has laid out is that working harder and harder to satisfy your own desires yields fewer and fewer tangible results. It's a model of very low efficiency. It's like trying to row a boat against the current. You row and you row and you never seem to gain any ground. And after a time, you start to grow tired and you start losing ground and then eventually the only direction you're moving is backward. Don't row against God's current. The results we read here in these verses are essentially a curse from God 
as the people continue to look inward instead of upward. The word providence is a word that's often used to describe God's care for his people. Providence is when God supernaturally works out all the circumstances in your life in order to bless you. It's like a wind at your back propelling you forward. But here, God is working against the people like a wind in their face, propelling them backward. They gather things together, and then he blows it away. And so they they recover, and they gather things together again, and he blows it away. The same thing happens to us. How many times have you, personally, been in a situation where you feel like you've just finally got to a place financially where everything is finally, I can breathe, my head is above water, and then bam, something happens. Car breaks down, somebody gets sick, somebody tears an ACL, the rent goes up, fuel goes up, or the cost of groceries goes up, and just when you thought, I'm finally at a place where I can breathe, you get hit with something again. I'm not saying this is always God working against you. But when it happens, do you consider your ways? If it's happening to you now, have you considered your ways? Have you evaluated your situation through God's eyes? You can have God's providence or you can have God's curse or if you will, his reverse providence. If you don't feel God's providence in your life, perhaps it's time for you to consider your ways. I think maybe the best commentary we can find on these verses is to simply read what Jesus says in Matthew 6, starting at verse 24. This will be a familiar passage for many of you. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his life, to the span of his life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Our passage from Haggai is the perfect historical illustration of what Jesus is talking about here in Matthew. The people were outwardly religious, but their hearts weren't really centered on God. They were preoccupied with their own desires. They had made prosperity rather than piety their goal. And they longed for things rather than God. And because they were aiming at the wrong thing, they were consistently experiencing failure. Prosperity eluded them because their priorities were not right. 
Instead of plenty, they knew poverty. Instead of being satisfied, they were hungry and thirsty, both physically and spiritually. They had no peace, for they were restless. And as we seek to share the gospel with the lost, this is one of the most important truths that we can share with people. Even people who appear to be religious, but who lack a genuine relationship with God. And here it is. Happiness and contentment are not attained by aiming at happiness and contentment. They come as a result of aiming at a more worthy objective, and that is the glory of God. You and I were created to know and to enjoy God. You and I were created for Him, not for ourselves alone. And if we go about life seeking in all things, all things, to live faithfully before the Lord, then and only then will we find peace and joy. If I selfishly aim at my own pleasures, true satisfaction will always elude me. Let me give you a, an example. If you're making a, a, a chair or a table with four legs and you use a, a, a circular saw or a saw blade, and you have to be cutting all four pieces of wood at a 45-degree angle, and you don't stare at the blade when you're making the cut if you want the cut to be straight. You make sure that the wood is pushed up against the stop, and you watch the stop as you slide it along. You want a straight cut, but you don't look at the blade. If you stare at the blade, you're going to make a mistake. And so it is in life. We were created for God, and we will only find happiness and contentment when we aim at Him. And that's why God says here in verse 9 to the Jews of Haggai's day, You looked for much, and behold, it came to little, and when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why did God blow it away? Because He loved them too much to let them be content with something less than the best. If we continue from the middle of verse 9 again, why? declares the Lord of hosts, because of my house that lies in ruins, while each of you busies himself with his own house. Therefore, the, the, the heavens above you have withheld the dew, and the earth has withheld its produce, and I have called for a drought on the land and the hills, on the grain, the new wine, the oil, on what the ground brings forth, on man and beast, and on all their labors. God would not let them become complacent and settle for less. A mediocre spiritual life was not good enough. So he made sure their misplaced efforts never paid off. Now, listen carefully because I'm going to say something, and I'm going to say it in a pointed way. In this passage, God equates right priorities with their focusing on the building of the temple. And they needed to apply the same kind of energy and effort they put into the pursuit of their own prosperity into the prosperity of the house of God. Did God mean that once the temple was finished, the people could go back to what they were doing before? No. What he meant was they needed to keep God as the fundamental priority in their lives, and that priority needed to find concrete expression in the way they lived. It wasn't enough to merely maintain some kind of normal religious ritual at the altar of burnt sacrifice. It wasn't enough to mouth pious platitudes about God's timing. It wasn't enough to have a reputation and name for being the people of God. It wasn't enough to even have some kind of testimony of past faith as they had had by making their return from Babylon. 
The proof of genuine past is in abiding present. So God challenges them, where am I in your religion? The fact is, if they were really right in their priorities, the temple would have been constructed long, long before. And once it was complete, the people would have gone on to restore each and every element of the law as God had prescribed in his word. What does that say to us? It says this. If our faith is sincere and focused on the right priorities, then the things of God will be the most important things in our lives. His kingdom, his work, his plan, his people, the church, will be our preoccupation. Our occupation may be the work of an engineer, or a salesperson, or a carpenter, or an assembly line worker, or a manager, but our preoccupation will be the work of the kingdom of God. Let's go on to verse 12. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, with the remnant of the people, obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the words of Haggai the prophet, as the Lord their God had sent them, and the people feared the Lord. What was the response of the people? Obedience. Praise God. The only response we should ever have to God when he calls us to something is that of obedience. And recognize this, as we'll soon find out in just a minute, their response was immediate. There was no delay. Verse 13, then Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, spoke to the people with the Lord's message. I am with you, declares the Lord. And the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. And they came and worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God, on the 24th day of the month, in the sixth month, in the second year of Darius, the king. 23 days. Three weeks is how long it took to assemble the crews and for the work to begin again on the temple. Now that's 23 days not of sitting around and deciding what are we going to do. It's 23 days of climbing up the mountain and cutting down the timber and bringing the wood down, getting your crews together and starting work. Their response to Haggai's message was immediate. Obedience happened immediately. And, And look at the transition that takes place in this time. In verses 6 through 11, the people ignore God, and God is against them. In verses 12 through 14, the people turn to God, and God is with them. What a comfort it must have been to know that they no longer needed to worry about the stress of their fields, of their flocks, and their crops, and their houses. God made sure that that would all be taken care of. In fact, in chapter 2, we're going to find that God blesses their harvest because of their obedience to him. Imagine the joy and the peace they must have experienced as they realized they were in the center of God's will. The people turned things around immediately. Many people believe that change takes a long time. It doesn't have to. Change can happen very quickly if you start with obedience. Obedience is the mark of maturity. Now, about a month later, Haggai will receive another message from God. And we're going to save that message for next week in chapter 2 as we finish this book. And so the question we have in front of us is, what's the application for us from this text? First, consider your ways. What is God calling you to build for him? 
Is there somewhere that your priorities need to change? Are you fighting, trying to row your boat against God's current? Are you becoming tired and stressed and irritable? Are you having fewer and fewer results from your labor? How can you make God the priority in your life? Maybe it needs to start with renewing your daily devotions, the start of each day. Maybe it means you need to have family devotions with your children and your spouse every day. Maybe it means you need to start praying again. Maybe it means you need to pray more. Whatever it is that God convicts you to do, I pray that you will answer in obedience. Obedience is always the right response to the revelation of God. Second, confess your failings. Psalm, 20, sorry, Psalm 32, 3 says, For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away. I can tell you that I have felt that feeling before in my past. I'm sure many of us have felt that at one time or another. What would my friends think if they knew? What would my spouse think if they knew? What would God think? James 1.15 tells us that hidden sin traps and torments us and ultimately leads us to death. Hiding is an ancient problem. If you look at our our friends Adam and Eve when they started this whole thing, what did they do when they broke God's command? They hid. After disobeying the instruction of God, our first parents from God They tried to escape his judgment by hiding. This remains our natural inclination. When we do something wrong, it's to hide, to conceal. The Bible beckons us to come out of the darkness and invites us to the light of truth. It does so by commanding us to confess our sins. Only through confession will we experience the joy and the freedom of forgiveness. Psalm 32.5 shares this. I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Selah. Confess to God where you have failed and accept his forgiveness. And finally, as the worship team comes back up, we should accept that you need God and commit to obeying him. In the book titled The Four Loves, C.S. Lewis describes a type of love that we never mature out of. It's called need love. And it's not something that you're ever going to grow out of. It's basically the love that you have for God that comes out of your point of need. And that's uncomfortable for many of us. We live in a time and an age where we want to be self-sufficient and self-reliant and self-determining. But the Israelites learned that they need God on their side. They needed him with them and not against them. And so do we. Consider your ways, confess your failings, and acknowledge that you need God. And out of that process, obey and see what God can do when he's with you. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for your love. I thank you for your grace. I thank you for the book of Haggai and that we can learn from it. Lord, this is an old prophecy, but one that still hits home today. And Father, I pray that each person here can take a step back and consider what you are calling them to do. That 
As we consider our ways, we can determine how we are failing you and confess our failings to you. I pray that we can find peace in your grace and mercy, and through that process, that we can recognize just how much we need you with us. You are the key to our success. And I pray that in the midst of that revelation, we would each respond in obedience to you and to your will. And all God's people said, Amen.